Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Hello everybody, it's the 1st of December and welcome to the latest episode of Give the People What They Want uh, with me, with uh, Zoe and I from People's Dispatch. Vijay is not there this time. <clears throat> He's been traveling on our reporting assignment and uh, last week again, due to various scheduling issues, we could not uh, do the show, but we're back this week. So much has been happening over the past two weeks, really, you know, kind of tough to uh, keep uh, you know keep keep yourself updated so much news has been happening unfortunately we are here today with uh, news which we were hoping not to have to talk about which is that the truce in gaza is no longer uh, in place uh, friday today being friday friday morning local time israel resumed its horrific bombardment of gaza once again as we speak uh, the death toll has definitely already crossed 100 hundreds have been injured uh, you know, the, the the same kind of destruction that was wreaked on Gaza for the first 48 days after October 7 has one second resumed. Now, we know that there was a seven-day truce uh, that first was scheduled for four days, then there was a two-day extension, and then a one-day extension during which uh, Palestinian prisoners, many most of them women and children who had been kept in prison for a very long time, were released. Israel was forced to release them in exchange for some of the captives who were taken hostage. And of course, uh, some some amount of humanitarian aid was also uh, let in. Uh, Definitely absolutely not enough to sort of meet even basic requirements. I think 150 trucks a day were let in, whereas even a minimum requirement would have called for 200 trucks. But at least there was some respite, some amount of uh, relief material going in, and especially vital considering the how badly hospitals, how badly schools, how badly bakeries, all of them had been hit during that uh, 48, uh, 48 days of attack. But and also we also saw that, uh, you know, people were able to go back. Some some people at least were able to go back to their homes in the northern part of Gaza you know, try to sort of salvage whatever remained out of there. Uh, very, you know, uh, again, a lot of pictures also coming out of the extent of brutality. Uh, that took place over there. Uh, important to note, of course, that uh, the U.S. administration, at least sources in the U.S. administration, were concerned when the truce was first announced uh, that the truce would enable journalists to actually reveal the extent of the destruction in Gaza, and some of them expressed their concern. That really kind of uh, shows, you know, really shows what is going on in the minds of U.S. officials. And uh, <clears throat> uh, but uh, to come back. Uh, what we also saw was that this truce provided a breather to some people uh, for a very brief while, but after seven days, once again, the attacks have resumed. And uh, it is unclear as of now if they will, although reports say that you know everyone, apparently, every, uh, all the mediators, US, Qatar, Egypt, have indicated they do want an extension to the truce. But the important thing to note is that there is no clarity on whether it will take place at all. Of course, both Israel and the US have blamed Hamas for it, but uh, as those following the news know, the question here is definitely uh, much, much larger. And uh, <clears throat> so much so much has been happening in Gaza. Uh, so many important uh, reports have come out in recent times. There's a, a very uh, unfortunate uh, report in 972 uh, MAG, which talks, for instance, about the how uh, Israel has planned its bombing of Gaza in the 48 days, the kind of strategies it has used. And it is astounding 
because of how it shows the sheer uh, inhumanity of this whole process whereby <clears throat> an apartment complex with hundreds of people could be bombed just because the suspicion that someone from Hamas could be there <clears throat> as, as that justifies it. And also that uh, what are called power targets such as universities or apartment complexes could be bombed so that apparently that would create some kind of pressure uh, on Hamas. And this really shows the uh, genocidal nature of the war that has been uh, taking place uh, taking place uh, in Gaza right now. So it's very difficult to sort of at this point say what is going to happen, uh, you know, whether some of these discussions will, <clears throat> sorry, whether some of these discussions will bear fruit. But uh, one, a couple of important things to note. One is that alongside uh, Gaza, we have also had continuing attacks in the occupied West Bank, in uh, occupied East Jerusalem as well. In fact, I believe that <clears throat> almost the same number of people were arrested uh, in the occupied West Bank as uh, prisoners were released uh, during the during the time of this uh, prisoner exchange process as well. And <clears throat> those who have been following our show, those who have been following the news, know that this is an issue we've talked about a lot. The <clears throat> arbitrary nature of arrests by uh, how Israel has arbitrarily arrested uh, Palestinians. And I think many of the Palestinian prisoners who came out during that time also narrating some of the stories of uh, the kind of hardship they face, the kind of, uh, you know, horrible treatment they face since October 7th. But also important to note that this has been a moment many for many of them of, uh, you know, highlighting their resistance. In fact, a lot of visuals of Palestinian prisoners being released uh, during this time, pointing to the fact that, uh, you know, the the sheer, this, the, the victory of the spirit, the kind of mass celebrations that took place at that point of time, despite Israeli threats, really uh, a testament to the determination, to the defiance of Palestinians who have been imprisoned, who have been attacked, who have faced all kinds of, uh, you know, atrocities during this point of time. So uh, a very difficult uh, time once again for the people of Gaza. The bombing continues to be brutal. I believe Israeli forces have dropped uh, leaflets uh, in southern Gaza asking people to leave. Uh, really, leave where? I mean, that's really... Uh, that's the important question over there. They've apparently released maps which uh, delineate northern Gaza into segments because uh, that is apparently how they plan to push out people. And all of this, I think, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of shocking because the ICC Chief Prosecutor Karim Khan is also uh, in the region. And uh, all of these explicit war crimes that are being done with the assistance uh, or with the support of especially many governments in the global north which have backed Israel to the hilt are going completely unrecognized, we are going completely unpunished. So this is where we are right now. We'll see what the coming days bring. Yeah, I think the, the key point that you said there, Prashant, is that all of this is happening with complete support and backing of governments across the global north, especially, of course, of the US government, which has uh, not only continued to provide billions of dollars of aid, but has been a crucial political ally and important to note that as Israel broke this truce, as Israel broke this temporary pause and resumed its bombing of Gaza, uh, Antony Blinken was actually in Israel meeting with Israeli officials. Um, in several statements, he said that um, if, if ground invasions are resumed, so he's already sort of uh, supposing that this is going to happen, um, that Israel should try to protect civilians. So he's he's willing to say that they should try to protect civilians, but clearly has no um, 
you know, no, at that point, even the negotiations that he was, his government was mediating, uh, really had no hope for that uh, being extended. Uh, we know that there has been increased pressure on the U.S. government to actually call for a ceasefire, but has it has really failed to do so uh, beyond the lukewarm statements like the ones from Antony Blinken about the need to protect civilians. Um, Joe Biden saying that, uh, I think he, he tweeted two days back saying that uh, Hamas is the, per the people who want the return to war. And so to not give in to Hamas's wishes, there should be some sort of peace, which is an extremely uh, devoid of facts uh, statement and a, a backhanded way of saying that there needs to be a ceasefire. However, his government does not have the political will and is clearly not really interested in actually uh, maintaining this peace. Um, at this, this week also, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill in Congress, uh, one, affirming Israel's right to defend itself and its right to exist, and also uh, critically attacking its own population by equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Um, we know this is a extremely intense debate uh, amongst kind of uh, the political elites. Most people know that the two are not the same. Um, they are quite literally very different. Um, Anti-Zionism is about opposing a political ideology, about opposing a, a project, um, a genocidal and settler colonial project. Um, and it has been used by the right wing and not even just by the right wing, but by both political parties, um, by the greatest allies of Israel to try to, to stifle and censor all uh, criticism of Israel, all criticism of Zionism, all criticism of the Zionist lobby in the United States. Um, and, and especially on college campuses, we've seen that there has been this severe crackdown on any uh, Palestine solidarity organizing. We know that at Columbia University, uh, like at many other universities, for example, the Students for Justice was Pal for Palestine was banned. Jewish Voice for Peace was banned. Somehow banning a Jewish organization is not anti-Semitic. Um, and so we're seeing that, you know, as Israel is already ramping up for war, already beginning its genocidal war once again against the people of Gaza, um, the U.S. political establishment, both parties, both parties completely uh, are are giving all political signals to say that the, that Israel should completely go ahead. Um, it's important to point out that uh, progressive members of the House, Alexandro Casio Cortez, Jamal Bowman, uh, other members of the you know self declared squad actually did vote for this resolution equating anti semitism with anti Zionism. Um, reaffirming Israel's right to exist. So it, it's looking pretty bleak in terms of uh, US politicians, once again, giving their a carte blanche to Israel. Um, this does not reflect the sentiments of the people. All major polls done by mainstream outlets such as Reuters indicate that uh, over 60% of US voters from both parties, from both parties support a ceasefire. Um, and these overwhelming numbers apparently have not been enough to convince even progressive politicians like Bernie Sanders um, to support a ceasefire wholeheartedly. Um, and we've seen the, the impact of uh, this complete support of the political establishment behind Israel. Um, people were horrified to find out last weekend um, that three Palestinian students were shot in the state of Vermont, again, a progressive stronghold, allegedly, this is the state, the home state of Bernie Sanders, who 
has really shown perhaps its true colors throughout this these past two months. Um, these students were shot because they were speaking Arabic, because two of them were wearing kofiyas on the street. Um, this happens in a climate where, again, the complete US political establishment and mainstream media um, is parroting these Zionist talking points, dehumanizing Palestinians, um, justifying Israel's massacre of Palestinians. And once again, this goes in complete opposition to what we're seeing in these mainstream media polls, but also on the streets. And that's what I wanted to talk about um, before we move to another story is that consistently for the past two months, people across the world uh, have been mobilizing, have been demanding a ceasefire, have been demanding that Israel actually respect humanitarian, international humanitarian law, that it lift the siege on Gaza, um, that humanitarian aid be let in. I mean, so many extremely clear demands that leaders from the global north and especially from the United States have essentially ignored. Um, we're seeing some of the highest levels of consistent mobilization uh, in recent history. Um, on Wednesday, on the November 29th, the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people, there were hundreds, hundreds of mobilizations, hundreds of actions held, again, by by, of course, Palestinian solidarity groups who historically mobilized, but even by sectors that haven't been mobilized for this cause before. We're seeing a record number of students, of educators, of healthcare workers, uh, understanding that defending Palestine right now means defending humanity. As you spoke about, Prashant, the unprecedented attack on healthcare infrastructure um, has been devastating and has really woken people up to the reality of what uh, the Zionist project seeks to do, which is to eliminate all life from Gaza, which is to eliminate people's possibility to even survive this genocidal attack. So um, we're, we're definitely seeing a sea change uh, amongst the people of the world, but the world leaders are unwilling uh, and too slow to actually really respond to this and to, to really abide by th these demands. Right, Zoe. Uh, uh, this is, uh, like I said, I think uh, a story which we will continue to report on both on text. So do visit our website, peoplesdispatch.org, where every day we have updates also on issues such as the health situation, for instance, in Palestine, which our friends at People's Health Dispatch are chronicling. The question of media, I think one of the, if I'm not mistaken, one of the victims killed today, one of the uh, persons Palestinians killed today was actually a journalist as well. The attack on so many sections of society, on children, on women, uh, on every every sector of society, the indiscriminate and brazen attacks that are taking place, we'll be covering them very regularly. You're watching Give the People What They Want and brought to you by People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. And uh, Zoe was talking about the reluctance of leaders across the world to heed the demands of uh, the people on the streets. And I think this in some ways segues very well to our next story, which is about a very similar issue. Uh, the reluctance of leaders, the reluctance of corporate heads to heed to the the urgent demands of our time, because we know that the 28th Conference of Parties, or COP28, uh, has kicked off uh, in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Now, I think maybe it's especially since COP26 in Glasgow that the COP meetings have become uh, something that has kind of emerged in popular imagination much more. There's been a lot of discussion. There's a lot of media frenzy around it top leaders from across the world, uh, many of whom have had extremely disastrous climate policies, nonetheless coming there to sort of, you know, use that as an opportunity to show their progressive side or show their uh, futuristic side or whatever. But 
this <clears throat> this COP really kind of throws a lot of uh, important questions at us. It's especially significant because there is a global stock take uh, report which came out uh, recently. Now there are a lot of questions about what is going to be done about this global stock take. The global stock take take test is a very simple thing, which is that uh, you know we are definitely nowhere close to meeting the targets we have set in order to address the question of climate change. Uh, we are definitely behind as far as all these targets are concerned. There is still a window to achieve them, but it calls for radical, radical action. And uh, but radical action is not really what we are trying to, what we ex what we're expecting or seeing from leaders across the world. There are a lot of statements, definitely, but definitely no radical action. So. Uh, <clears throat> that definitely is one big question that uh, you know it lies ahead of us because this global stock take report will lead to renewed pledges or will be the basis of renewed pledges uh, in 2025. What these pledges will be, uh, what they will achieve really is, I think, a question staring at all of humanity. It's not just one country or two country or one some sections of the people. It's a question for all of humanity as well. So. <clears throat> Definitely, uh, that is one aspect of it. Another key aspect is the loss and damage fund, which is uh, which was adopted, but uh, with severe reservations among kind of countries, especially from the global south, from the activists, because it's going to be the World Bank that will administer it. And uh, right now, the money is not is just beginning to sort of flow in. Now we know that initially, some years ago, hundred billion every year was committed for the poorer countries, the global north had committed that money and that money never really came. Uh, a, a very small fraction of that money came and there are many similar fears with the loss and damage fund as well. So all of this, <coughs> sorry, all of this put together, uh, raising some very uh, serious questions as to what COP28 is uh, going to achieve. Uh, will it be just a moment for leaders from across the world to come and make important statements? Uh, about the importance of combating it, but not achieving too much. What will happen to the target of 1.5 degrees? What will happen to the target of 2 degrees? Uh, will uh, countries of the global north continue what has long been their uh, you know, strategy, which is to say that forget our historical responsibility, now all the responsibilities on the developing countries because their population is much more, uh, they're producing a lot of uh, greenhouse gases, so they should do uh, you know they should pay exactly the same they should pay the price in some senses for the crimes of the developed countries or the actions of the developed countries over uh, the centuries so uh, the question of uh, differentiated responsibilities which really is the fundamental benchmark which has been the basis of all these discussions so far has been diluted over the years and the, the global north countries of the global north have used all kinds of strategies to sort of evade their historical responsibilities to wriggle out of their historical responsibility and now present and make it seem like this is everyone's problem at the same level. And I think that is the fundamental question that countries of the global south, activists, all of them are going to be pushing uh, throughout these two weeks, of course, in which the COP28 is being held, but also to the rest of the year, because it's climate change is not just about one conference. It is about uh, a continuing process, a continuing battle that has to be fought. And part of the battle is through measures such as you know scientific through technology through development all these are important parts of this battle uh, on trying to combat the release of these kind of gases but part of it is also a historical battle a, a battle against historical oppression part of it is a battle against colonialism and its impact as well and i think that is what we need to center when we talk about climate change that uh, this notion of it being some kind of an umbrella issue 
or an ahistorical issue, that notion is what we need to continuously keep uh, fighting as well, so that there is a just uh, transition in every sense of the term, in, in historical senses as well. The word just transition is used a lot, but what does true justice in this context actually mean? So that's uh, COP28. We'll ex again we're following it. It's just the early days. I think it's just uh, the, it's just started right now. So we're going to be seeing some very 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 heated discussions uh, in the coming days as well. We'll be closely tracking it. We'll have interviews with experts. So do keep following us uh, at People's Dispatch to find out more about this. Well, we're back to a favorite topic, which is elections in Latin America. We hadn't had a show since Javier Millet was elected president of Argentina. He's going to be sworn in on December 10th. And already uh, there's been confirmations that uh, the leader of the Vox party in Spain, the far right party will be attending. Uh, other people are confirming as the days go on. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro, importantly. Um, and we talked about what Javier Millet means, what he represents. Um, and really, I think that uh, the, re the reaction from many progressive sectors has been of surprise that he was elected. Um, as we mentioned on the show before, his proposals are extremely, extremely out there uh, in terms of just a radical change in how Argentine society and politics work. He wants to dissolve the central bank. He wants to dollarize the economy. He wants to cut you know, dozens of ministries and uh, threaten the way the government currently functions. He announced, uh, I think just yesterday that he wants to pass an omnibus law, um, which would have some uh, 500 um, decrees, which would uh, to be able to, to deregulate the economy. Um, he says that he wants to unleash the economy and, and be able to develop the productive forces. But as we know, the, dereg the complete deregulation of the economy, especially a very protected one as Argentina, will have disastrous consequences. Um, there's so many different elements to this. And I think that, uh, again, the initial response to his election was of a lot of fear, of a lot of self-criticism from progressive forces. How did it get to this situation where someone with such a menacing proposal who's actually really promised not only a situation of stagflation, He's actually said this, that he he expects that in the first period of his government, because of the austerity policies, because of uh, the economic policies he wants to take forward, that there will be an extended period of um, the currency devaluation and continued inflation, um, but also that he's promised to worsen austerity. Um, and it's these austerity policies that were undertaken by Mauricio Macri um, that put the Argentine economy in the current situation that it's in today. Um, and the fact that he was able to win and gain popular support, and let's remember, he actually beat Sergio Massa by over 10 points. This was not a close call. This was not a almost technical tie. This was a clear, clear and resounding victory. Um, I think that ha has brought questions in many people's minds, especially, I mean, the fact that this centrist position uh, taken by Sergio Massa, taken by Alberto Fernandez, of trying to appease the centrist uh, forces, trying to appease both maybe the soft right um, and the center left, uh, was clearly not able to convince the people. Clearly, it was a proposal that was not responding to the people's need needs and let's remember that the the poverty level in argentina currently is is over 40 percent 
inflation in 2022 was 100%. In the coming days, I'm sure we're going to find, we're going to see the inflation statistics for 2023, which could be even worse. Um, Sergio Massa, right at the end of his uh, campaign period, started to implement a series of different um, economic measures to try to attend to these re very ex real economic material needs of the people. But I think that what the, these results tell us is that it was too little too late. And the real denigration of people's conditions and of the situation in the country extends far beyond uh, the immediate material needs and, and really gets to kind of rejection of politics at, uh, in general and of kind of a whole political group that was unable to resolve the people's needs. Um, let's remember that Sergio Massa was also the economy minister under Alberto Fernandez, currently still serving. Um, so it, it's it's clear that his association with this government, uh, even though in campaign period, he really tried to distance himself from this, uh, did not do him any favors. Um, so it's, it's definitely a moment of we're going to see a lot of rebuilding. It's going to be a moment of resistance. Uh, Javier Millet has also made serious and considerable threats against the human rights organizations in the country, saying that social justice is ridiculous um, and that rights such as public education, free health care, uh, all of those uh, should not be guaranteed. And so we're going to see a period of intense struggle in Argentina, of intense, intense struggle of social movements and organizations reorganizing, remobilizing their people to resist these attacks. Um, the, the negation of, for example, the crimes of the dictatorship, this is something that touches Argentine people very deeply. Um, so he, again, he gets sworn in on December 10th. And then I think we're gonna see exactly how far he will go how much is he going to actually fulfill some of the more ridiculous promises that he made and some of these campaign uh, statements that he made? Um, but it is going to be an extremely difficult period for the Argentine people. Right, Zoe. And uh, our last story for the day is actually something on almost similar lines across the Atlantic in the Netherlands where Hurt Wilders, his, uh, his party has emerged, a very right-wing, far-right-wing. Earlier it used to be called far-right-wing, but... Now, in many places, they're so they're so part of the mainstream. I don't know if that term even makes sense anymore. But definitely, a far right wing politician. Uh, his party emerges as the single largest party in the elections held recently in the Netherlands. Uh, the party is called PVV, and uh, uh, Wilders has been in the political scene in the Netherlands for a long time, actually. And his extreme views uh, are really a matter of public record. There's nothing hidden about them. He's been, you know, he's come out, he's come up with some extremely uh, dangerous uh, proposals. You would almost call them rabble rousing, except for the fact that this is a politician who's been around for so many years, leading a party that gets a substantial amount of vote. Uh, he's, you know, especially very strongly Islamophobic comments, very strongly anti-immigrant comments. Uh, you know, talked about uh, severe austerity policies, for instance, and has always thrived on actually uh, taking the debate uh, in the most uh, extreme uh, directions, in, which is why often comparisons are made to Donald Trump, although in that way, Wilders has been in the political spectrum for much longer. Now, during the course of this campaign, of course, he apparently moderated some of uh, these positions and the people say that that's one reason ex-analysts say that that's one reason why more people might have been inclined to vote for him but i think an important thing actually from what zoe was saying what what happened in argentina is also the fact that uh 
Wilder's victory clearly points to the failure of the center uh, to sort of, you know, uh, to in any way address some of the key issues uh, that have, uh, uh, you know, are really plaguing people's lives. The impact of these neoliberal policies. Now, in the case of countries like Argentina, many of these neoliberal policies are imposed on them by international financial institutions. Uh, the Netherlands is one of the richest uh, countries, uh, you know, in Europe. So the question there is then that why are these neoliberal policies uh, encouraged? We have, we have we had a prime minister who's been in power for quite a long time, I believe 13 years or so, Mark Rutte, who's consistently imposed these policies, who consistently bungled. Uh, various aspects of governance. Uh, there was corruption, there was mass uh, mismanagement, etc., etc. And all of this together created a context where anti-systemic views in the form of somebody like Wilders or a protest vote uh, ended up in the hands of a dangerous right-wing uh, you know, character like Wilders. And I think the fundamental question there again boils down to this, that how long uh, you know, will it be before people, uh, before even it's a question to the center that they might want to address as well if they care about it. That how long, for instance, uh, will you continue with these uh, absurd prime uh, absurd policies uh, of of neoliberalism of basically destroying people's livelihoods of creating policies which are leading to increasing inflation while the super rich benefit. This is specifically a case in the Netherlands is where corporate profiteering has been you know really soaring. So across the world we see this corporate profiteering uh, profiteering soaring. Uh, people, uh, people on the streets are really struggling to make a living. Uh, right-wing figures coming in and always blaming the outside. It could be the immigrant. It could be somebody from a religious minority, uh, and then capitalizing on these conditions. And then you have all these uh, uh, people, sort of, the, uh, you know, people from the center, people, liberals, for instance, turning back and saying, "How did this happen? That such a right-wing character comes to power?" Whereas the answer has been there all along. So. Argentina and the Netherlands, I think, uh, you know, in some cases, very different countries, very different contexts. But nonetheless, I think posing this fundamental question, we're going to see many countries uh, facing these questions uh, in the coming months and years as well, unfortunately, because this is a global uh, failure, just as climate change uh, is a global failure, just as the international uh, failure to uh, address the issue, uh, address the question of Israel's policies is a global failure. All these are questions I think that, you know, need to sort of uh, be uh, that all these are questions that we need to sort of keep asking, I think. And uh, that's what we're going to do. That's what we keep doing it. Uh, give the people what they want. That's what uh, we try to do every week without reporting. Uh, so please do visit uh, pe uh, peoplesdispatch.org. Please do read uh, everything from uh, Globetrotter, a lot of very interesting articles as well. And uh, we'll come back next week. Uh, with a fresh episode, which are also probably likely to be there. So we will continue tracking, I think, many of these issues uh, that we took up today as well. So see you next week.